This morning's message I have uh, titled, Leadership Reformed to Holiness. We'll begin again with another word of prayer, and then we will read the scriptures, make some observations and applications along the way. Father, your name is to be held in the highest reverence and holiness. As we approach your word this morning, we need grace for understanding, mercy for our sinfulness, and the power of grace to enable us to walk in holiness as your word describes and as it prescribes. Lord, I ask that you would have mercy on us in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. So chapter 13, we will begin and I will read the text uh, completely and then we will dive right in this morning. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet with the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field, so I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out any good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods, and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut, and that orders be given that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. 
Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From, the, from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this in my favor, my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations was there no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women even made him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehodiah, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed from them everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O God, for good. This is the powerful, inerrant, inspired word of God. Amen. So on Larry King Live, Joel Olstein was interviewed. And he was speaking on the exclusivity of Christ as the only way to salvation. So here's the question from Larry King. If you believe, you have to believe in Christ, right? If not, then all these other religions are wrong, aren't they? This is Larry King, not a Christian, asking this question of a man who supposedly is a Christian. His response Well, I don't know if I believe they're wrong. I believe here's what the Bible teaches, and from the Christian faith, this is what I believe, but I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. I spent a lot of time in India with my father, and I don't know all about their religion, but I do know that they love God. And, you know, well, I don't know. I've seen their sincerity, so so I don't know. I know for me and what the Bible teaches, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. I don't know. The people of God need to know. And the people of God need leaders who know. The church needs preachers who know. We, like never in my lifetime that I can remember, have reached a crisis of a moment of truth. We are in a crisis where there... There seems to be no truth around us. We need men and women in the church who know the truth, who will stand on the truth, convinced of the truth. Our nation is facing our moment of truth. Will we move forward as a republic governed by laws designed to foster our flourishing? Or will we abandon the the principles of our founding fathers and become a nation that is ruled and governed by 
not by the people, but by an elite ruling class. It is a moment of crisis. It is a moment of truth. But our church is facing a monumental moment of truth. Will we be a people set apart for the glory of God? Will we be a people who live in the world and not of the world? Will we continue to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or will we be content with just blending in? Will we be satisfied with the status quo? Will we be satisfied with waiting to live our life for Jesus until the time when Jesus comes and snuffs out the lampstand of the church because we've become so complacent and not set apart? We've been so blended with the world, he won't even be able to distinguish which is his church. This is not mine. This is not one that distinguishes itself and sets itself apart for me. These are not a holy people. These are a people who are somewhat holy, somewhat committed, and yet they are blending everything together. In Revelation 2 verse 5, he says, Consider how you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at the first. If you do not repent, I will come and I will remove your lampstand from its place. We need a return to the things we did at first. That is the term form, right? To be brought to its former form, right? To its proper form. This is our moment of truth. We need men and women who are born of the truth, convicted in the truth and convinced of the truth, who will stand in firm conviction with a single-minded focus on the mission of God personally and on the people to lead them in the conviction of the mission of God corporately. This is our moment of truth. As we look in our text, we see that Nehemiah is a leader who stands firm in his conviction without regard to his popularity among the people that he is called to lead. Nehemiah is single-minded in his resolve. The reformation of God's people, the return of God's glory and honor to the city of Jerusalem and to the nation Israel reversing the shame that was brought about by the consequences of their own sin. So what is the single-minded purpose of Nehemiah? What is the chief characteristic of God? I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to ask you several questions. And at the end, the answer to each one of these questions is the same. Okay? So, uh, again, what is the single-minded purpose of Nehemiah? What is the main characteristic, the chief characteristic of God? What is to be the ultimate pursuit of the people Israel? What are the people of God, the church, to have as their single-minded, overarching purpose? Well, Nehemiah's single-minded purpose, the chief characteristic of God, the ultimate purpose for the people of Israel, and the single-minded purpose of the church is this, holiness. Holiness is the pursuit. So to give us a working definition this morning, holiness means to be hallowed, consecrated, or set apart for sacred use, or to be set apart, to be used in the service and the worship of God. Godly leaders such as Nehemiah are concerned primarily and with absolute conviction this, God is holy. He is set apart and He is above us. He is perfect in purity and perfect in goodness. He is W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, other. And that the people of God, as 
created image bearers of God are to be a reflection of the otherness of God by living in a way that is W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly other than the world around us. Wholly different, separated, set apart, holy people. The people of God were released from bondage of Egypt earlier in the same way that these uh, Israelites are sent back to Jerusalem. Earlier, they were released from the bondage of Egypt and they were set apart for God with a great commission of their own. The great commission for Israel at that time comes from Leviticus 11, verse 44. It says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. God separated them from the world, calling them holy, setting them apart for His service. And then He commissioned themselves, He commissioned them to separate themselves, to consecrate themselves, to be holy other than the world, to be holy as He is holy. And this is God's concern for the people He calls. God's concern for the people He calls is not happiness or ease. God's concern for the people that He's called is holiness. Now, you know, holiness does lead to happiness, real happiness. I'm not saying that you have to forsake happiness, that He wants us to be miserable and holy, miserable and set apart. But those who are holy, who are set apart for God, who are growing in holiness, are truly happy people. Think about Jesus, who is completely holy. What, did it, what does the word say about Jesus and His holiness? It says that he had the oil of gladness above all his brothers. He had the oil of gladness above all his brothers. He was happy because he was holy, right? But holiness was the aim. Holiness is the goal for the people of God. Holiness is the aim and the goal for the people of the church. God's concern for the people he calls is not happiness and ease, but it is holiness. It is separateness. It is otherness. Nehemiah is concerned with what God is concerned with, isn't he? That's how you know that Nehemiah was a man of God. His concern for the people of God was the same concern as God's concern. God's concern was that the people of God be holy. Nehemiah's concern was that God's people be holy. He was set apart for holiness. Nehemiah goes to great lengths to exhort the people of God to holiness. In this book, here's a lit in this chapter, here's a list of the ways in which Nehemiah exhorts, encourages, entreats, pushes Israel to holiness. He threw the worldly items out of the temple in verse 8. He gave orders in verse 9. He rebuked, then he called them together in verse 11. He warned, verse 15. He rebuked, verse 17. He warned, verse 21. He rebuked. He beat some of them. He pulled their hair out and he made them swear an oath. Verse 25. He purified. Verse 30. Do you not think that holiness was a big deal to Nehemiah? It was a really big deal. Do you not think that holiness is a big deal to God? Separateness. Set apart. It's a big deal. It is a. It is the deal. It's not just a big It's the thing. If you think about it, when God says, I am calling a people to myself. I am separating them from the world. I am calling them holy. And his command is be holy as I am holy. 
That's the whole deal. He's called us out to be a holy people, to be separated to him and for him and for his service. You see, I think that what is happening in today's time is actually something that I have longed for and actually prayed for. And you're going to think I'm out of my doggone mind, but I'm going to, but, but hear me on this. I believe that cultural Christianity is dying. I believe that for good reason. Because it has been a faith that is blended with the ideals of the world. It's been a, it has been a Christianity that has been married to consumerism. I praise God that that is being snuffed out. The 21st century church, I believe, will be stronger than our previous generation if we repent of our appropriation of the world's views and the world's system and its values in the church. If the church reforms and returns to God's desire for his people, this, to be holy because I am holy. We will be stronger only if preachers and Elders and leaders in the church take up the mantle of declaring the truth without regard for cultural soft peddling, without regard for trying to please the masses and make people happy. We will be a stronger and better church. We will be a stronger people in the 21st century if we return to the truth. If we are people who are separated to the truth, who stand for the truth, who will willingly open our ears and hearts to listen to the truth and to believe it and to walk in it. Well, as we look at our text, we saw last week that they were celebrating the, the dedication of the wall. And that really is the end of the book in the timeline. That's kind of the end of the book is this day of celebration. It could actually end in chapter 13, verse 3. This is kind of the end. This is the final reform. Nehemiah has been making reforms. He's been returning them to their uh, purpose as a people to set apart the city of Jerusalem for God and for his service and to bring the glory back and to reverse the, the shame of their captivity and their sin. And they've, they've returned again. And uh, in 13... Uh, the first three verses is kind of the end. It's the last reform. On that day, they read from the book of the law of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. See, the conclusion of Nehemiah in the timeline is the end is the, this day, this dedication of the wall. And on that day, at the dedication of the wall, the people made their final reform. Having heard the word of God, they excluded all persons of foreign descent. They finally had completely separated themselves from worldliness. That was the, that was the last separation that needed to be done. That is the end of the book of Nehemiah, essentially. But we're going to see, as we look at this text, that there was a time before this when Nehemiah was away, that some of his earlier reforms had gotten reversed again. What is our aim, brothers and sisters? Are we living in such a way as to secure the good life 
Are we living our life so that we might achieve an exemplary morality compared to the rest of the world? The writer of James tells us that pure Christian religion is undefiled before God, is that man and woman keep themselves unstained, unspotted from the world. The pursuit of the Christian is not perfection. Christ Jesus is our perfection. Our pursuit is transformation. Our pursuit is removing all the things that we cling to in this world and all the things of the world's system and remove them and, and, and to put them off and to uh, continually put on Christ, to continually put on His holiness, to seek separation from that which belongs to the world. See, the Bible calls us holy, not because we have attained holiness, but because by sovereign grace, God selected sinners like you and sinners like me who believe. We have been consecrated to God. We have been set apart to Him, called holy, separated to holiness. We have been called to a life that is different, a life of nonconformity, if you will. We have to be nonconformists. Those who don't conform to the ways of the world, those who don't conform to the world and its system, to be transformed, to have a transformed life, a life that is being conformed by the Word of God into the likeness of His Son, such as that day by day we grow in holiness, that we reflect the image of His Son more clearly. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 12, Verses 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. More than nonconformity, we are called to live transformed lives, transformed by the Word of God, by the renewal of the mind, reformed by the Spirit of God to conform to the image of God that is perfect and acceptable, a living sacrifice, killing worldliness in us, separating ourselves from the world and its system, and actively pursuing and killing sin in our lives. It has been said that the problem with the living sacrifice is this, what? That the living sacrifice gets up off the altar. It lays its down, it's, the, the living sacrifice lays his or her life down only to pick it back up again. That is a constant pursuit, laying down our lives sacrificially that we might grow in holiness, in separateness, putting off sin, putting off the world, and putting on Jesus Christ, to be conformed to Christ is to abhor the things that he abhors, isn't it? To be conformed into the image of Christ is to hate the things that Christ hates. And it is to be pleased with the things that Christ is pleased with. It is to be pleased with things that please God without compromise. We will see from our text that Nehemiah is a man who is displeased with the things that displease God. 
Our final celebration for us will come, brothers and sisters, when we have put off this body of sin once and for all, when we have the righteousness of Christ fully realized in us, we will finally no longer cry out as Paul does in Romans 7, O oh, wretched man or woman, whoever you are, that I am. We will no longer cry that out. That is the pursuit in this life though, isn't it? Is to be putting that off so that one day when it is fully completed and we are in the presence of God, we are holy, like actually holy, separate, pure, like he is, having been conformed into the image of his son. And you might be thinking, well, that will ultimately happen, of course, because by faith I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sin. Yes. But those who are just saying, I'm going to live however I want to now, because that is true, I don't believe you really believe. I don't believe that you really have been born again to new life. Because the born again, those who are born again to, to new life, hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves. So if you love your pet sin more than you love God because you won't let it go, I don't know that you've been born again. To love God is to love the things God loves and to hate the things God hates. God hated sin so much that he killed his own son for you. He hates sin. He hates it. And he loves holiness. And so at the same time, that death on the cross was God's hatred for sin and love for sinners. Love for the people that he has separated to himself. Love for people he separated to holiness. Before the day of celebration comes here in verses 1 through 3, Eliashib had invited the worldly foreigner into the temple, blending the world with the things of God. Verse 4 through 6 says, Now before this, Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by command to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the saints. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. He's blending here with the world. He had moved the enemy into the house of God, replacing the articles of worship and removing the provisions for the ministers of God, bringing Tobiah in, made the storehouse of God no longer separated to the service of God, but compromised by blending the worldly and the godly. Where is the distinction from the holy to the profane in the gathering of God's people on the Lord's day? The place where we meet is set apart only because we are a people set apart. There ought to be a distinction from the profane to the holy when we gather each Lord's day. And I painstakingly take a process to do that. Every week in planning these services, the order of service is such that it is a reflection of the Word of God 
and the will of God, and everything is driven by the Word of God, which is the reason why we pray the Bible, we sing the Bible, we preach the Bible, and we expect those who are in Christ that they will be converted and transformed, that they, by His grace and by His mercy, will live the Bible. In this moment of church truth, church, we are at a moment of truth. And will we, will we, no longer asked to be entertained in the church? Will we no longer desire feel-good message? And will we begin to desire the meat of the word that we might be renewed in mind and transformed in spirit? Will we no longer blend in with the priorities of the world and make them the priorities of the church? Maybe instead of a soccer game on Sunday, we will gather with our brothers and sisters. Maybe instead of sleeping in, we will press in to worship of God. Will we travel? How just how far? How far will we travel to hear the word of God in our services? Will we travel just as far to hear the word of God as we do to earn an extra dollar? Will we no longer blend the worldly and the godly in our service to him? You see here, Nehemiah has been away from Jerusalem. While the leader is gone, the people go astray. They begin to assimilate instead of separate. They begin to assimilate with the world instead of separate themselves from the worldliness. Instead of pursuing distinctness. Instead of pursuing separateness. Instead of pursuing holiness. After 10 to 12 years, that's the approximate time most scholars think that Nehemiah was gone. was 10 to 12 years, Nehemiah returns and he brings once again reformation to the house of God. Reformation to the Sabbath. Reformation to the faith. So it might be helpful for us this morning as we continue to get a working definition of what reform means. To reform, this is a blending of an actual dictionary definition and then what I've come to understand from the Scriptures as a definition. So it might be helpful for us this morning. To reform is to put into a form having abandoned evil, faults, and falsehood. To reform is to return to the truth, to return to a proper form. So, Nehemiah discovers some things when he returns. Verse 6, While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portion of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had each fled to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judea, Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O God, concerning this, 
and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of God and for his service. So upon his return to Jerusalem, Nehemiah discovers the profane in the house of God, the abandonment of holiness, the blending of the world with the sacred, and he is flat out chapped. The godly leader is displeased with what displeases God. Notice that Nehemiah does not ask nicely for the profane things to be removed. He doesn't come in and say, could you please remove those things? They don't belong here. No. Nehemiah vehemently and violently removes the profane. He purifies the house of God in decisive and immediate action. Further, he finds that the provision for the ministers has been withheld and that the ministers then have abandoned their post because they were not being taken care of. So, Nehemiah rebukes not the ministers for having abandoned it, but he uh, rebukes the officials. And he says, why is the house of God neglected? Nehemiah then puts the ministers back in their posts, brought provisions back for the ministers, back into the house of God. And Nehemiah has brought the house of God back to its proper form. The house of God is being reformed. Orderly, separated people are to worship God in an orderly, separated way. This is what pleases God. This is what pleases God, and therefore what should be pleasing to all of God's people. I ask us, have we neglected the house of God by bringing profane, worldly worship? What does Nehemiah want to be remembered for? And what do you and I in Christ want to be remembered for? Well, Nehemiah wants to be remembered for fidelity, for faithfulness. Is that what you want? Do you want to be remembered for faithfulness? I know as a pastor, there are, you know, those guys who have uh, large congregations of thousands. And it can be the kind of thing that a pastor can go through and think, I don't have thousands of people coming uh, to hear the word of God preached. And I know years ago, as I was walking around praying and thinking about ministry and thinking about numbers and people and all of that. And the still small voice whispered to my heart, faithfulness is what I've called you to. I've called you to be faithful. I haven't called you to be famous. I've called you to be faithful, right? Faithfulness is what God has called us to. Faithfulness is what Nehemiah wants to be remembered for. Ne that's what Nehemiah wants his church, his people to be remembered for. To be remembered for fidelity. Not for greatness, but for faithfulness, right? So as we move forward in 15 through 22, we see that Nehemiah reforms the day. First, he reforms the house. Then he reforms the day. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, 
I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites and guard to guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Remember me according to your steadfast love and remember my faithfulness. That, that is Nehemiah's cry. The Sabbath day is to be a day separated, a separate day for a separate people to worship a separate God. It was a day to separate from normal work. It was a day to devote heart, mind, and soul from the ways of everyday society and gather with the people of God. In Nehemiah's absence, they allowed the day to be profaned by buying and selling, with regular work being done, with foreign trade going on, as if the Sabbath were just any other day. Nehemiah rebukes the nobles for desecrating the Sabbath, for disregarding the holy day, the separate day of the Lord, and disregarding it, he says, is heaping future wrath on God's people. That's Nehemiah's warning. Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. Jesus fulfilled the law of God and we rest in His finished work. Well, the early church began to gather on the first day of the week in celebration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Sabbath principle still applies to the people of God. There's a day set aside to separate ourselves from our daily work routine and to gather with the separated people of God. The Lord's Day, we celebrate the first day of the week, bringing the first fruits into the house of God on Sunday. Now I'm going to say something to you this morning you may get offended by, but here you go. I learned this from Ruthie Wilhelm, by the way. Uh, you may be offended by this, but, but here you go. It is a wickedness to not gather. It is a desecration of the new life that you have been brought to in Jesus Christ. It is to neglect and desecrate grace. You have been given grace. You have been made holy and new. It is a great wickedness to neglect, to gather, to be holy, to be set apart to God. It is a great wickedness to neglect it. We need reform in this area. We need a return to proper form. We need to redeem the day of the Lord. We must once rid ourselves of this notion. Here's the notion that I see in the church. Is that my salvation is an individual thing. And that my individual salvation is of the highest virtue. While each of us, it's true, is saved individually, we are saved corporately. We are saved from the world to a people from the world, set apart to a people. That is that we were individually called out of the world 
but we are collectively a corporate witness to the truth. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Nehemiah pleads by the mercy of God and the love of God that he be remembered for returning the Sabbath to its proper form. I pray that God would be merciful to us since we have often neglected to separate the day of the Lord for the gathering of God's people. And now the last part of this passage is that they had begun to mix themselves in marriage so that they were not a distinct people. And remember, from the whole book of Nehemiah, this is the point. These reforms came for the purpose because they had started to lose their identity. Could you imagine that if we were taken out of America and we were placed somewhere else for 70 years and all the traditions and all the things that we had learned and knew what it meant to be an American and we longed for our day to come back to America and now we're set back in America but we don't know how to be Americans anymore because we've started to lose our distinctiveness as a people. So this is what's going on here is that they have started to lose their distinctiveness as a people. And these are the reasons for these harsh and firm and confident reforms, right? We need to protect that. That was what the wars and the battles at the gates and at the, at the wall was about. These things are threatening our distinctiveness. They are threatening to, uh, to rid us of this holy separation to God. We're to be as distinct people separated to God, Israel was. And Nehemiah leads them to this. And now they've become, in his absence, marrying into worldly systems. In those days I saw the Jews, verse 23, who married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons to take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not King Solomon of Israel sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women even made him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously, against our God by marrying foreign women. The people of Israel had so mixed with the world around them that half of their children couldn't even speak the language of Judah. The whole purpose for building the wall and the return to Jerusalem and the reestablishment of worship was that Israel would be a distinct people, a set-apart people, set apart for God and set apart for His service. In other words, they were to be holy. They were to be people of faith. I ask us this morning, you know, because we can marry at any race and any nationality that we want because there is no distinction in Christ Jesus, right? But are we married to the world? Are we like that Texas pastor who says, I don't know, I mean, you know, uh, uh, they're sincere and, uh, well, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I should be distinct from the world. They're, I mean, you know, they're, they're like me. I, I guess I, I don't know. 
I don't know if I should make a, an exclusive truth claim that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection is the only way to salvation. I, I, I don't know, because they're just really sincere, nice people. I don't know. Are we like that? Have we married ourselves with the world that, that says that all opinions are equal and valid? That, that the greatest virtue in the world is tolerance? Is that, is that our greatest virtue? Or is the great virtue that we're searching for, that we're pursuing, that we are actively in the Word of God and asking for the Holy Spirit to do in us is the transformative work of making us holy, of pursuing holiness? Well, they had mixed. And the people of God are people of the same faith. They are people who have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ for sin. The church is for the born again. The church, the ecclesia, which means church in Greek, the, the word for the assembly in the Hebrew in the Old Testament is the exact same translation as ecclesia, church, the set-apart people, the assembled people of God, those separated from the world and separated to God. They have by grace, we have by grace, the church is the people who by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, have been separated to Him. When Nehemiah discovered that they were assimilating with the worldly, with those not called of God in marriage, those who stubbornly knew better and blended and mixed themselves to the point of no discernible distinction between themselves and the foreigner, he rebuked them, he beat some of the men, and then he pulled out their hair. That's seriousness about distinction, isn't it? It's being serious about being separated to Christ and separated to Christ's people. You know, you might think that, wow, Jeff, that's a little bit harsh and I'm not used to being here. And uh, is it always that way? Well, it's what the Word says. I'm just, I just want to deliver to you what the Word of God says. And I will tell you this, that all are welcome to gather on the Lord's Day, any Lord's Day, but not all are to be embraced into the people of God. The church is to be distinctly the blood-bought believers in Jesus Christ. I will tell you in my experience in ministry, and some of you were there, but you probably don't know this, but I personally witnessed non-believers being baptized. I personally witnessed elders being affirmed who bore no fruit in keeping with repentance. This should infuriate all Christians. May God remember those who profaned the church. May God remember those. This is Nehemiah. May God remember those who profaned the church of God. And it's a crime against you. If our leaders profane the church of God, they profane the truth, it is a crime against you as a believer to allow that to be mixed into your life because it will harm you. It doesn't teach you or doesn't bring you into the thing that God desires for you, which is holiness, separateness, to be set apart by Him. May God grant us reform. I ask that God would grant us a return to proper form in the church. May God remind us to reform the Lord's Day to allow us repentance for our neglect, 
May God separate us from the profane. May God remember us for faithfully separating ourselves from the sin-sick world around us. And here's the thing. Good news, guys. So I'm gonna, I'll get off the whole fire and brimstone thing. This is good news. So here's the good news. The good news is this. I don't care how far you've been or how disobedient you've been. I don't care if you have rejected God over and over and over again. You are not so far away that right now His Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And all you must do was, is believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died for your neglect, died for your transgressions, died for your sin. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that God indeed raised Him from the dead after three days, that you now have new life if you believe and confess. That's good news, brothers. It's good news, sisters. We are never too far away from God. We are never too sinful that we can't be saved. We just can't save ourselves. We have to cry out to Him. Well, let us take a moment of silence and just absorb the Word of God, and then we will commune together.